So have you ever heard of the power of positive thinking? The power of positive thinking. It's the idea in life that if you will develop some, some patterns and some habits of positive thinking in your life, that, that it will make your life better. It will improve your life. It will bring more satisfaction to your life. It's been said this way, if you think positive, positive things will happen. 65 years ago this week, Winston Churchill was speaking at the Lord Mayor's Banquet in London, and he said this, for myself, I am an optimist. It does not seem to be much use being anything else. Very true statement. If you're a pessimist, bless your heart, we're really sorry, but you're really wasting your time. Uh, It is of no use, and Churchill's right, to be an optimist has great value. To be optimistic, to have a a positive attitude, it, it definitely is of good. And if you struggle with that, then there are people that will help you to be optimistic and positive. Someone said this, life is too short to be serious all the time, so if you can't laugh at yourself, call me, I'll laugh at you. You may have a friend who's already offered to do that. And your positive and optimistic way of thinking can also spill over into the lives of others. You can be a help to others. Someone named Herm Albright famously said this, a positive attitude may not solve all your problems, but it will annoy enough people to make it worth the effort. Yeah, it's a good word. Because if you're positive and if you're optimistic, (laughs) trust me, it'll annoy everybody in the biscuit joint that you're having coffee with. It really will. I was sitting uh, yesterday uh, in, a, in a waffle joint, and I, I just heard two men on the other side of the room. They were angry at every single thing in the world, everything in the world. At one point, one of them said, you know what? When the time changes, it's going to start getting darker. And, and for 10 minutes, they were mad about it. I mean, just angry. And I was like, what, what are you going to do? And it went from one thing to the next, just, just this frustration, this, this pessimism. We, we live in a culture that's, that's pushing that on us. We live in a culture that says, man, you know, everything's bad. And, and I promise it is worth it to annoy some people <laughs> with some positivity. It is worth it to say thank you and yes, ma'am, and yes, sir, and no problem, and it's no big deal. That goes a long, long way. But what if it doesn't work? What if positive thinking doesn't work? What if you think positive and positive things don't happen? See, it takes just a moment to look at real life, and real life is is hard. Real life is sad. Real life is heartbreaking. Real life is nerve-wracking. Real life is sinful, and real life is stressful. Can positive thinking help from time to time? Sure. Can positive thinking help most of the time? Sure. But the difficulties of real life cannot be solved with cute kitten posters with positive quotes. We need more than positive thinking. For the real heartaches and the real difficulties of life, we need something greater and more powerful than just positive thinking. Is there such a thing? Is there a power like that? Well, there is. Well, what is it? Well, let's see if we can find out. Philippians chapter 4, verse 7. 
Apostle Paul writes, and the peace of God. The power that is greater than positive thinking is the power of the peace of God. What is the peace of God? Well, taking a look at the Bible as a whole, G. Campbell Morgan defines the the phases of divine peace in, in three different ways. He said there is peace from God, there is peace with God, and then there is the peace of God. Peace from God, peace with God, peace of God. Well, let's unpack those just, just for a minute so we get a good idea on it. We'll, we'll start with peace from God. We live in a world that's hungry and desperate for peace. From the teenager starving for acceptance at school to the divorced mom with young kids to the widow with chronic illness to the Syrian refugee, we are a people all over the world starving for peace. From time to time throughout history, we will see that a a treaty or a world council has has had a a treaty, a peace treaty, and they've brought peace to a, a region or to a time in history. But we also have seen throughout history that those peace treaties sometimes are just momentary ceasefires and war erupts again. And even today, the the TV, the radio, the internet, the newspaper, they all have communicated again today stories of war and rumors of war. Back in the 60s, peace was a, a cultural buzzword. Everybody was flashing the peace sign everywhere they went. But did that generation really experience peace? Did the the peace that they were flashing the sign for, did it did it really come to the world? Did war and and crime and and disease, did those things disappear? Did did hatred disappear? Now, should every generation do what they can to bring peace in their time? Yes, in in every way possible, in every way that God strengthens us. But C.S. Lewis once wrote this. If we thought we were building up a heaven on earth, if we looked for something that would turn the present world from a place of pilgrimage into a permanent city satisfying the soul, we are disillusioned. See, we cannot build a a permanent city that will satisfy our soul here because our soul will only be satisfied in the permanent city built by God and God alone. But should we strive for peace? Yes. And we strive for peace in a a lot of different ways, don't we? We look at the ways that that the 60s culture was striving for peace or the 70s or the 80s. And and really throughout history, it's it's always the same. There's a striving for peace that that falls into a bunch of different categories. And it's really no different than today, just, just with some different names. Today, we live in a world where people are trying to find peace in, in prescription medication. They're trying to find peace in illegal drugs, in sexual morality, and adultery. Trying to find peace in, in sports and entertainment or, or hobbies. Trying to find peace in, in traveling or, or gardening. Trying to find peace in, in shopping or weekend getaways and food and drink, even among friends and family. And the reality is outside of, of sexual morality and adultery, the rest of those things are, are fine and good. They're, they're helpful 
But none of those things can bring true and lasting peace. When temporary peace is over, we are left looking for more peace. We're trying to find the the next hit of peace, whatever that may be. We see a picture of this in Proverbs talking about the drunkard. Proverbs 23, verse 35, the message paraphrase puts it this way. They hit me, you'll say, but it didn't hurt. They beat on me, but I didn't feel a thing. When I'm sober enough to manage it, bring me another drink. He got beat up, but he didn't feel anything because he was drunk. So he's thinking, man, being drunk is my peace. I got beat up and I didn't know anything about it. But then when his drunkenness wears off, first of all, he's going to hurt. <laughs> he's going to feel it. I got beat up. But then what's he going to do? He's going to go looking for the next drink. He's going he's to go look for that phony peace that he thinks is actually going to help when it's just a cycle. And, you know, just to be clear, we are quick to throw arrows at the drunk. But just remember, every single one of us can apply Proverbs 23, 35 to our lives. Yours could be TV. Yours could be food. Yours could be shopping. Yours could be sports. Yours could be the gym. Yours could be anything. You fill in the blank. We all have the ability to to sit and, and to engage in something that we say, well, this is what's bringing me peace. Your your marriage can be an idol. Your children can be an idol. Your parents can be an idol. Your grandparents can be an idol. Your grandchildren can be an idol. Your church can be an idol. Your country can be an idol. Your team can be an idol. Anytime we take something or someone and said, this is what I'm going to find my peace in, and I'm going to still work at it, and I'm going to keep working at it until I get peace from this person or from this thing, we are no different than the drunk described in Proverbs. It's, It's a phony peace, and we we chase after it, and we chase after it. The world offers us a lot of phony peace, drugs, drink, immorality, technology, entertainment, travel, material things, people. And and what the world does is it, it presses us to want people and want things more than we want God, to want people and things first and most instead of wanting God first and most. In, in practical language, it can sound like this. You know what? You just need to get that education, and you'll have everything you need. You just need to get that promotion, and everything will come together. You just need to get that medicine, and all your health problems will go away. You just need to get that new car, and you will find happiness. Now, clearly, education, promotion, medicine, new car, those, those are good things. Those are helpful things. But none of those things can bring you true and lasting peace. Why? Well, partly because none of them are free. All of those things require a a unique amount of, of commitment of money, of time, and devotion. The kind of money, the kind of time, the kind of devotion that can actually steal your peace from you. The kind of devotion that can actually create stress. The peace the world offers is temporary, it's external. The peace the world offers cannot actually reach your soul. So, is there a peace that can reach your soul? Hours before he was arrested and crucified, Jesus said this to his closest friends. 
Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Jesus tells his friends, look, I've got some peace and I've got some peace for you, but it is completely different from the peace of the world. The peace that I'm giving you is completely different because the peace I'm giving you is directly from God. The only way you can get the peace from God is from God. He's the only one. So peace from God is a gift. Peace from God is is not something that we can get. Peace from God can only be given by God to us. Peace from God cannot be flashed with your hand. You can't get peace from God just wishing upon a star. You can't buy it at the big box store. You can't buy it at a boutique in Charleston. You cannot earn peace from God just through church membership or reading your Bible or praying. You can't earn peace from God just by performing a lot of great deeds during the holidays. No, God's peace is given peace. It is a gift. And so the the first phase of the peace of God is is peace from God. It is a gift. And how has God designed to give people his peace? Well, that takes us to the second one, peace with God. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, all of us have a definition of what it means to be a Christian, but, but the Bible gives us the best definition of what it means to be a Christian. Being a Christian is not just that, hey, I, I prayed a sinner's prayer on some day and I was at camp or I was at the front of the church and the pastor shook my hand or whatever it may be. No, the definition of being a Christian is bigger and greater and more intense than that. Paul writing to the Romans says that it's about being justified. So being a Christian means that you have peace with God. Things between you and God have been made right. God is for you. You are saved. You are safe. You are free. How? Why? Because the penalty, the just and right penalty for my sin and your sin, our sin and rebellion against God and against God's ways, that penalty has been paid by the blood of Jesus. Jesus has satisfied the penalty of our sin. Think of it this way. Are you more at peace or less at peace when there's money in the bank? Just, I mean, casually, right? If if you know that, you know, you you get the email, the text saying you're down below a certain amount, you know, you're less at peace, you know, than if you don't get the message. If you are not a Christian, then your spiritual account with God is empty, and you can't make a deposit. You have nothing to add. You are spiritually bankrupt, and something much worse than creditors are coming. There is a a time bomb, so to speak, of condemnation that is desiring to set itself upon your soul for all eternity. But see, being saved, being saved, being free, being justified means that Jesus has put his righteousness in your account. You can't make the deposit, but he can. And once that deposit is made, everything between you and God is right. 
Your account with God is squared away. It is satisfied. Jesus said this, there is no peace without him. The peace, the only peace that matters for your soul must be given by God through Jesus. So if you have never repented, then we plead with you, repent and turn to Jesus today. Come to Jesus. Enjoy his peace. Embrace his peace. Be free. Be saved. Be safe. And what does the peace of God feel like? What is this peace from God, this peace with God, what does it feel like? Well, that takes us to the third phrase, third phase, the, the peace of God. That, that's really what Paul's getting at. Peace from God means the only satisfying salvation that your soul can ever experience is a gift from God. Peace with God means that that satisfying salvation can only come through Jesus Christ. So what's the peace of God? Listen to what Paul writes next. And the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension. So what is the peace of God? Can't explain it. <laughs> That's basically what Paul's saying. He says, I can't explain it. It's, it is beyond comprehension. It's not something that can be explained. Paul's saying that the peace of God is beyond our imagination. It's beyond the normal way that we feel, the normal way that we think, and the normal way that we talk. The peace of God is beyond just a few moments of positive thinking. William McDonald said this, People of the world cannot understand it at all, and even Christians possessing it find a wonderful element of mystery about it. They are surprised at their own lack of anxiety in the face of tragedy or adverse circumstances. That's true, right? Some of us have been in that moment. In a moment of, of tragedy, of adverse circumstances, when we think I should be losing my mind. And we aren't. There's, there's this thing. Paul goes, that's the peace of God. You know it's not from you and you can't explain it. That's the peace of God. Consider two pictures of peace here. The first one, let's go to a, a porch on a cabin high up in the mountains of western North Carolina. God's true country. And, we, and we're up there on the front porch and, and it's about 30 minutes to an hour before the sun's going to set and, and we're just sitting on the porch drinking coffee. It's just quiet, it's relaxing, it's beautiful. Right, that's, that's one picture of peace. Now let's look at a second picture of peace. 1571, Anne Hendricks was convicted of renouncing the Catholic Church and being baptized as a Christian. She was tortured, she was commanded to recant her faith, but she refused. After her refusal, the bailiff declared this, you must die in your sins, so far are you strayed from God. She was tortured some more. They filled her mouth with gunpowder. They bound her hands together. They tied her to a ladder. They made a huge bonfire, and they lifted up the ladder and pushed the ladder over into the fire. And as the authorities watched 
that ladder go up into the air. They looked and saw Anne Hendricks very calmly, very peacefully, fold her hands in prayer and look to heaven. So, Mountain Porch or Anne Hendricks? Which one is a truer example of the peace of God? 2 Timothy 1 verse 12 Paul says, for I know whom I have believed and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. It's as if Paul is saying, look, I I don't know why I got arrested. (laughs) I mean, he did. I don't know why I'm arrested. I, I don't know why I'm beaten. I can't explain all these things to you in a way that makes sense. I don't know why I have fear and and worry and stress. I don't know why there's so much danger around my life. But this I know. This I can explain to you. This I can tell you. I know who I am believing in. I know the one that I have trusted my life to. I am convinced of who he is. Thirteen days ago, former Georgia and Miami head football coach Mark Rick had a heart attack. By the middle of the day, this is what he tweeted out. I did have a heart attack this morning. I'm doing fine. As I went through the experience, I had peace knowing I was going to heaven. This is like a few hours later he's tweeting this. So so in the moment, in the experience of having a heart attack, this 59-year-old man said, I had peace that surpasses comprehension. How? Because long before his heart attack, he knew who he was believing in. Long before his heart attack, he had peace from God, and he knew he had peace with God, so he is tweeting with the peace of God. It surpasses comprehension. It can't be explained. And notice with that tweet that the peace of God does not mean you won't have a heart attack. The peace of God does not mean that you won't get a disease. The peace of God does not mean that tragedy may not come your way. The peace of God does not mean that trials and tribulations will not find you. But the peace of God does mean that in your absolute worst moment, there is Why? Because of Jesus. Because we have Christ. There's a story told of an evangelist that was preaching a a service in Ireland, and he was talking about what it means to abide in Christ. And he closed his message out with this thought. It means that in every circumstance you can keep on saying, for this I have Jesus. For this I have Jesus. Now, at first glance, most of us professing Christians, we, we get on board with that. All right, yeah, that's good. Yeah, for this I have Jesus. Right on. But if we're really honest with our hearts, the way we will live this afternoon, tomorrow, and Tuesday, and Thursday, and Friday night, the way we will live is, for this I have a spouse. For this I have insurance. For this I have the government. For this, I have a savings account. For this, I have the pastor. For this, I have my family. 
Paul's not telling us to look to people and look to things as our primary source of peace because we will be disappointed. Because the best spouse and the best parents and the best kids and the best pastor and the best president and the best coach and the best athlete, the best anything, is never going to perfectly be able to bring you peace. I would like to continue to repeat something that I've said in recent weeks. Every official in every football game is not going to make every call. You know why? Because you wouldn't either. And every 17 to 21-year-old kid in that game is not going to make every play and make every catch and make every block. You know why? Because you wouldn't either. We need as Christians more mercy and more grace as we watch sports. We need more mercy and more grace when that girl gets our order wrong. You know why? Because you'll get an order wrong. We have to remember that we are the chief of sinners. That's what Paul said. Like the guy who got Christianity better than anybody. I'm the chief of sinners. Well, goodness gracious, I'm not the assistant chief. I've got to be higher. Paul's not saying don't, he's he's saying don't find your peace in people and things because it it won't happen, they'll disappoint. And the other reason he's not saying that is because that's not the message Jesus left for him to preach. Again, just not long before he was arrested and crucified, this is what Jesus said to his closest friends. John 16, 33. These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world, you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. See, the message that Jesus left is, is come to me, look to me. Look, look to me for peace. The message from Jesus is, are you having marriage problems? For this, I have Jesus. You have a rebellious child? For this, I have Jesus. Money problems? For this, I have Jesus. Church conflict? For this, I have Jesus. Corrupt government, for this, I have Jesus. Health problems, for this, I have Jesus. Death, for this, I have Jesus. That's the message Jesus left. What is the big heartache or difficulty in your life right now? I mean, we've all got one. It's either at home or work, school, or, or maybe it's just something that you're stressed out or anxious about, something you're afraid about or worried about. We, we all have one thing. What, what is that heartache? What is that difficulty? And the question is this, do you have Jesus for it? I mean, do you? Do you have Jesus for whatever that is? Are you finding that your salvation is the answer for that heartache or that difficulty? If salvation in Jesus Christ is your first and greatest hope, then no matter what you're anxious about or worried about or afraid of or stressed out about or angry about, whatever it may be, there is peace you can find in every moment, peace that is beyond comprehension. It surpasses understanding. I think that's exactly why Paul's writing this to his friends in Philippi. He's wanting to say to them and really to us, you know what, the peace of God can't explain it, but you'll know it. (laughs) You'll know it when it happens. Because in that moment, you'll know that you didn't build it, that you didn't make it, 
that you didn't create it, that it came from outside of you, but boy, it got inside of you. And how do we know that it's outside of us? Because it's the peace of God. It's not the peace of us. It's not the peace of the world. It's, it's the peace of God. And the peace of God is unlike any other kind of peace that we will try to find in any person and anything in this world. John Phillips describes this in just fantastic language. He said this, What can disturb God's peace? Could some happening in a remote part of the galaxy disturb his peace? Of course not. He is omnipresent, always on the spot. Nothing can take place behind his back. He is right there, no matter where, all the time. And he asks this question. Could some diabolical thought of Satan disturb God's peace? Could some mystery, some obscure idea, some crafty twist of error, or some plot hatched in the demented soul of Lucifer to thwart God's beneficent purposes and bring new forms of suffering into the universe disturb God's peace? Of course not. God is omniscient. He knows all the wiles of the evil one, and in his infallible wisdom has anticipated and annulled every one of them. He says this, Satan's deep counsels are just so much gibberish to God, however clever and sophisticated that they may seem to us. He goes on, can all the might of the gates of hell disturb God's peace? Of course not. He is omnipotent. He can command galaxies and create atoms. He can toss stars into space and hold satellites whirling at inconceivable velocities on their orbits. There is no physical, moral, or spiritual power that he does not rule with consummate skill and tireless ease, not in heaven or earth or hell, not now or ever. This is who we're worshiping today. This is who we're singing about. This is who we're preaching about. This is who will still be in charge of the world no matter what falls apart in your world by 9 o'clock tomorrow. This is our God. This is God and God alone. And he says this, nothing can ruffle the peace of God. You've been ruffled this week? Man, I've been ruffled. Nothing can ruffle the peace of God. It is a calm beyond all storms, a rest beyond all strife, a haven behind all tempestuous seas. And then, because he was writing years ago, he throws a little current history in. I just thought this is interesting. You, you can apply it to anything that we've read about war and nations battling and anything else that we experience today. This is what he said. Did Soviet atheism and militarism disturb God's peace? Was he intimidated by the size of the Russian army, by the success of Soviet propaganda, or by the worldwide presence of the KGB? Of course not. And then he goes farther back. In Paul's day, was God upset by Nero? When that evil man burned Rome, blamed the Christians, and began a persecution rarely surpassed in history, did he take God by surprise? No. God's peace was undisturbed. And he says this, We do not know why God held back his hand then or why he holds it back now, but we'll understand it better by and by. Someone will say, that's, that's not enough for me. It's not enough for me to understand better by and by. All right, Phillips has one more thought. The unfathomable peace of the God who controls the universe pursues a faultless purpose. Faultless purpose, meaning it can't fail, it can't mess up. 
let me break the news to you. You will fail this week. You will mess up. You're going to say the wrong thing. You're going to do the wrong thing. You're going to think the wrong thing. Thanks, Dal. So glad I came to Holland Avenue for this peppy message for the week. But you will. And guess what? So will I. But you know who won't? Our God. He won't fail. He won't make a mistake. He won't say the right, wrong thing. He won't think the right thing. His purpose is faultless, and we follow him. That's good news for us. That's why we can have peace, because we are with the owner of peace. Paul wanted the Philippians and us to know that this is your God. That this is your God. This, this is what he desires to do in your life. And then he says this, the last part of verse 7. And the peace of God will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Like, like having soldiers at every door of your house, 24 hours a day, protecting your family and your home. God's desire is to stand at the door of your heart and to guard your heart and your mind and your soul with his peace. So what does that look like in real life? One of my favorite artists, Christian artists, uh, is Toby McKeon. He's known as, as Toby Mac. Many of you read uh, about 12, 13 days ago, his oldest son, Truett, who was an aspiring musician like his dad, uh, was found dead at his home. Uh, he's just 21 years old. The next day, this is how Toby responded to the devastating loss of his son. This is what he wrote. My wife and I would want the world to know this. We don't follow God because we have some sort of under the table deal with him like we'll follow you if you bless us. We follow God because we love him. It's our honor. He is the God of the hills and the valleys and he is beautiful above all things. How can a devastated father respond like that? Because he was able to immediately say, for this I have Jesus. And because that's true, the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, which cannot be explained by the best Christian on the planet. The peace of God is guarding and keeping and loving and helping his heart and his mind and his soul. I would dare say I, I just have one longing for us is that we would become the kind of people that you would see and hear from our life, not perfectly, okay? Because that's, that's not going to happen. But at least consistently, that we would be a people, that we would be a fellowship, that we would be a family, that we would be a church, that we could say individually and corporately, you know what? For this, I have Jesus. For this, I have Jesus. For this, I have Jesus. Jesus.